All right, let's just go and do it. I <laughs> let's like go that. and do it. Let's just go and do it. It's easier that way. Let's just go and do it. Mm-hmm. Hey, everybody, I'm Kai Riznal. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us, everyone, on this Tuesday, September the 19th. And because it's Tuesday, that means it's time for our weekly topic on weekly show on a single topic. Got those mixed up. Anywho, today we are talking all about Bidenomics. Which is, of course, uh, President Biden's co-opted name for his uh, economic plan, which uh, we're... Uh, I love that. Uh, anyway, we're going to discuss that with Mark Blythe. He's a political economist at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. Mark, uh, welcome back to the pod. It's great to have you back. It's great to be back. Uh, so what do you think of the uh, of the co-optation of, of the Bidenomics thing? I mean, first it was the GOP doing using it derogatorily. Uh, do you think he will have success, the president, in, in trying to rebrand? You know who originally invented it? Bidenomics? No, I don't. I think it was actually Ed Luce from the Financial Times. Oh, I think he funny. can literally lay yeah. claim to it being oh, his that's thing. Funny. That's funny. But that's anyway, funny. the thing is, the, provin- the, the, <laughs> the, the lack of clarity on provenance tells you a lot about selling the concept. Here's the problem. Remember Reaganomics? We spoke about it a, a while yeah, ago in yeah, an yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can put that on a T-shirt. It's really simple, right? It goes, tax mm-hmm. cuts good, the state bad, market's awesome. That's it. <laughs> Boom, you're sorted. Now, not, Bidenomics is not like that because there's no T-shirt slogan. Second thing is it's not like a body of well-worked-out economic ideas like Keynesian macroeconomics or one of these things. So what is it? It's actually a kind of a reaction to three things. The first one is the Democrats woke up to the fact that for the past 30 years, the American working class has been getting the short end of the stick and they no longer mm. vote for them. The second thing is globalization was awesome for shareholders and firms pretty good for consumers, but for workers, not that great. And it turns out when you give away your industrial base to basically your number one competitor, bit of a problem. And the last one is climate change is real. And it doesn't matter whether you think it's real or I think it's real. China thinks it's real. And do you really want to have all the skills, technology and everything needed for climate change abatement in the hands of someone who's a strategic competitor? Hmm. No. So it all crystallizes in the CHIPS Act and the IRA, and that's Bidenomics. It's basically industrial policy. It's not a set of ideas. Hmm. That for sure does not fit on a (laughs) T-shirt. No, absolutely not. (laughs) So, I mean, how then does Biden go about explaining this, all of that, to people as a good thing, a.k.a. worthy of him being reelected? Well, you can see how he's struggling to do this, right? I mean, it's like it's right from his campaign before he was even president. He kept banging on about good union jobs, right? Okay, fine. I think the most generous estimate is seven to eight percent of American private sector workers are in unions. This is about reindustrialization. This is about bringing back industry in the United States. Uh, depending mm. on how you count it, it's about 11% of GDP. So the vast majority of us don't really have any contact with what's being rebuilt. And I think that's a mm. real struggle for the president in trying to sell this. It's like, this is a really important thing. It's crucial for America, but you've got nothing to do with it. Bit of a hard mm. sell. So so let me let me frame it a, a little bit differently. What the Biden administration, and, and I'll be curious as to your thoughts. So what the Biden administration is trying to do here is re-engage the government with the economy at a scale not seen maybe since Lyndon Johnson, uh, but possibly as far back as as FDR. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's exactly what they're trying to do. If you look at the amount of spending that goes through the IRA, the tax credits, the subsidies for investment for the private sector, it's very different from, let's say, the 1930s. In the 1930s, you were going out and building the Hoover Dam Mm -hmm. because you didn't have one. Now we've Mm -hmm. got one. We don't want to build one of those. But what we do (laughs) want to do is build battery factories. What we do want to do is build windmill facilities, right? And that's very different. But at the same time, you know, it's it's of a thing. It's of a pace. It's really about reindustrializing America, having figured out that giving the whole lot to China was probably not the smartest move. Hmm. I have to tell you, I'm still stuck on this um, point that you made about, you know, something like 80 percent of us are working in the services sector and Biden's hammering in about the other 20 percent. Is there are those the voters that he needs? (laughs) So the easiest way to sell this is to sell it to the people who are already going to vote for you, right? Most Democrats, Mm -hmm. we do a partisan split. Most Democrats are like, yep, climate change. Yes, we should do something about it. So if you front load the fact that this is really about America getting serious about decarbonization and getting a technological lead and a physical footprint and how to do this stuff, because this is going to be the energy of the future, et cetera, et cetera, then what you're going to do is have all the people who are already going to vote for you go, yeah, about time. And everyone who's thinking about voting, you're going, maybe that's not what I want. And definitely all the Republicans will lose their minds. So it has to be about something else. So what do you do? You make it about China. It's about strategic competition. How many people really vote for foreign policy? Not that many. (laughs) So it's just a tough one to get this into a messaging box. Again, it's not like Reaganomics. Tax cuts good, state bad. What was the other one? I can't even remember. But you can put it on a t-shirt. Market's great. Market's Market's awesome. Market's great. Exactly. So how long do you suppose, just since we're in the politics of this thing, let's keep going. How long do you suppose Biden has? We are now 14-ish months away from the election. How long do you suppose he has to change the perception of his message? Because he pulls on the economy now at like 39, 40%. Does he have six months, eight months? Does he have until like late spring? Where are we? I'd think about it less in terms of that because... Honestly, what really matters is four or five states and what the marginal voters going to do and turn out and all that sort of stuff rather than messaging this. I think about this as facts on the ground. I believe there's something in the region of 10 to 12 battery factories opening up just mm-hmm. in and around Georgia. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. whole of Tornado Alley is basically being sh- showered with uh, IRA money for wind developments, et cetera, et cetera. Loads of these things are going into Republican districts. Now, if you create a factory that employs 6,000 people directly and 10,000 people indirectly, the chances are they don't want to see the subsidies that make that happen go away. So if you manage to basically create kind of material interests on the ground and maintaining these subsidies and this types of policy, then that can be enough to move the needle more than perhaps the narrative itself. Hmm. So we've talked in passing about the IRA and and the <clears throat> infrastructure law and you know the Chips Act. Chips Act. How are these policies actually going so far? I mean, they became law. He's still not polling great on the economy, but how well are these new policies actually working to achieve the goals they laid out to do? 
Well, it's obviously it's a long-term play. You're not going to see everything in a year. But if you simply look at pledged investment, there's a few websites out there that track this stuff. You're talking somewhere in the order of the initial spending on the green side of the bill was some $360 billion or something like this. The pledged mm. investments that are being levered up on top of this are basically about the same order of magnitude on top of what's being pledged. So you're talking something that's you know a significant chunk of change online already with the equivalent to the stimulus that you did during COVID if you map this out for another year and those investments continue. So there's a lot of money pledged. There's a lot of ground being broken. What's really beginning to be quite interesting about this is the kind of second order problems. So you get friendly with Korea again because of one of your allies and they've got better batteries than you. So you get them to open up a factory. And I think this was Kansas or someplace like this. And they're like, great, let's do this. And then they look around and go, oh, we have a problem. What is it? We don't have any workers with any of the skills we need to do this. Mm. Right, because when you get rid of your industrial base, you no longer have those types of workers. So it's one thing breaking ground and giving someone a subsidy, but you still got to find the workers. So, you know, this is not exactly a linear process. How did it happen? Sorry, if I could just back up historically here for a minute. How did it happen that we gave away our industrial base? <laughs> because it was so profitable to yeah. do so, Kai. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a people. longer story here, but, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, but you know, for, for the short, the short answer goes like this: Look, we think about a, a state like Wisconsin as being sort of you know one of the deindustrialized states, and it's true. But Wisconsin lost a third of its industry not to foreign countries, but to right-to-work states. They were getting away mm. from the high-cost unions, so they went to Texas. And then after Texas, they went to Mexico. And after Mexico, once China joined the WTO, boom, let's go. Let's move the whole supply chain in there because they've got a comparative advantage in very cheap labor, very good infrastructure, and environmental despoilation, which our EPA won't allow. So let's go for it. The net result was we had factories for consumption called Walmart. They had factories production, and the two of them were intermediated by the dollar. So long as you were a shareholder, it was awesome. If you were a worker in any of those states, it was a tragedy. So that took decades to do, right? Sorry to jump in here, but yep. that took that took decades to do. How long does it take to undo if we can? Ah, now see, this is why you got the focus on green tech. It's not just the fact that it's necessary. It's the fact that we know how to do it. It's not that complex. It's really about basically redoing the power source for your grid and upgrading your grid. It's about wind. It's about solar. These are all known knowns. It's simply then about getting the scale of investment needed to get that in there. Now, here's the other side of that story. The other viable, if you will, business model in the United States for states, and think about going from Alaska to Oklahoma to Kansas, mm -hmm. down to East Texas, all the way out to Mississippi, Alabama, come up to West Virginia, is the core of the Republican coalition. What do they do? They do farms, they do fuel, they do fertilizer. They are what I've called in writings the carbon coalition. And what is the IRA? The IRA is a mortal threat to their interests. Because if you decarbonize, who needs carbon? So when we think about the election that's coming up, think less about the personalities and think about it as a clash of business models. The Democrats want to decarbonize because we have to. And the other side of the country says, yeah, we may have to, but if you do, you turn me into the Midwest 20 years ago, and I don't want that. Last week when Biden was talking about this, he contrasted Bidenomics with what he decided to call Trumpian Maganomics, which gets right at what you were talking about, of these competing business models. Do you think that's yeah. an effective messaging way around this? 
But again, only to the people who you've already got in your pocket, mm -hmm. right? Fair. So all the young people, yeah. if you look at surveys, right, climate skews young, you've already mm -hmm. got them. They're not going to vote Republican. They're not MAGA folks. Whereas on the MAGA side, it's like, you want me to double down on carbon for the next 10 years when the world's carbon short and prices are up $100 a barrel nearly? Let me just get loose. So, so I don't want to. I don't want to end on a downer, and we don't have to end because it's our podcast. We can do. But, but that's we why want. you bring me on. I'm Scottish. <laughs> what? Do, what? Like seriously? What do you expect? <laughs> oh man, the, the that's dour, why you bring the, me on very occasionally. The, the, let's be honest. The, the, the dour <laughs> Scotsman. Um, so, so look, we are politically polarized in this country in a way we haven't been in a century plus. Um, we are facing an existential crisis that many people in this country, including the elected leaders of many people in this country, refuse to acknowledge is real or has to be dealt with. And I guess the question is, what do we do with this? And I don't expect you to have an answer, but but this it seems unsolvable. Well, if you, th you want to put a very positive spin on what Biden's yes. been doing, let's move <laughs> it away from Biden, right? Let's think about this as what America needs to do, right? The real source of our power lies in the fact that we have the dollar. Everybody uses it to buy everything they need around the world from everyone else. The reason they have dollars is because we import tons and they export stuff to us. That's kind of how the world works. Now, if you lose the dollar, if other people start using other currencies, it'd be a bit of a problem for us because then we wouldn't have this unlimited checkbook. Now, if we double down on a carbon model and the rest of the world continues with a green transition, which is exactly what will happen, then Europe goes closer to China. We stay out of the conversation. They move a generation ahead on green tech. They start to have the patents, the IPR, the intellectual property rights on the products that you need to live in a warming world. And we come back to the party 10 years later and it turns out nobody needs carbon anymore. And then you don't need dollars anymore. So this is a very big problem for the United States. You might not like the idea of decarbonization, but denying it is probably more dangerous and not just for the climate effects. All right. So look, so this goes to, and I don't want to drag this out and I'll let you go in a second, but this goes to a conversation Kimberly and I had yesterday on this podcast, which, which was in no small part how government doesn't work in America. And part of what we came to was or maybe what I came to, I don't want to characterize what Kimberly was saying, but you, you cannot possibly have decent policy of any stripe, any policy, just to do anything when one party wants to govern and the other party's idea of governing is denying actively mm, yeah. the other mm -hmm. party what they want to get done. Right. Right? So yep. you, oh, oh, good. Yep. Oh, oh, wizened political economist, it 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 spells it spells not great things, right? Because we can't get there from here if our politics is the way it is today. You know, we've been through this before, though. There's a, a political scientist at the LSC whose name escapes me now who wrote a paper on this, and it's how in the South. Once the Civil War was won, what Southern elites did was they realized the higher taxes were on the way for reconstruction. So what they did was they deliberately hollowed out their state. They underfunded it. They cut jobs. They cut pay for people who worked in the state. And we've been doing a kind of equivalent for the past 30 years. You know, rah, rah, the entrepreneur, the private sector is great. Mm -hmm. Markets mm -hmm. are wonderful. Anyone who works for the government's a loser, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then you discover that if you want to do the really big things in life, 
you don't get that done by the free market. You get that done by the balance sheet of the state. And when you've mm. spent 30 years hollowing it out, you have to figure out that you might need to build it back up. And what we've got is really a contest between one party that wants to build it back up and one that is quite happy to see it hollowed out. So so not, not to go too deep down the Civil War metaphor here, but what we're looking for is the better angels of our nature, right? Mm. Indeed it is. Or at least an election where the IRA survives yeah. and then you double down on those investments and then you create mm -hmm. the facts on the ground that make it very hard to reverse them. Right. Think Obamacare. Once it's on the books, right. very hard to get rid of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mark Blythe at Brown. Always a ray of sunshine, Mark. Always a ray of sunshine. Yeah. I, I try to be that <laughs> shaft of darkness through the light. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate talking to you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. You know, he reminds me of something that we talked about when the CHIPS Act was originally passed, and I hadn't thought about it in the same context for the IRA, but of positioning a lot of these investments in very crucial districts. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, totally. To, totally, totally. And, and I was thinking of it more of a lens of, you know, elections and, and getting mm -hmm. reelected, but this idea of positioning them in these key districts for the survival of the programs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is also mm -hmm. very interesting yes, because if, you know, you put <laughs> all of these plants in Texas or Georgia or Missouri, you know, those voters are going to want to keep those jobs. And even if they don't elect people who you know, are aligned on those sort of carbon goals, they will definitely elect people who will not get their jobs taken right, away. Right, right, right. Well, it's like defense procurement. Like, and, I, and I don't remember- I was remember just thinking like the, the F-15. Right. I, I don't remember <laughs> what plane it was or what big weapon system it was, but there is something in the in the Pentagon's arsenal which has a supplier or a, a factory like or a something in every congressional district. district. That's right. In 435 yeah. congressional districts. And that's kind of what this is, you know? Yeah. 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 So interesting. All right. Uh, we would love to know what you all think about Bidenomics or perhaps Maganomics or these two competing systems or even that framing of it. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us, makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. 
Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. All right, here we go. News, Kimberly Adams. Yeah, this is my other one that I wanted to get to yesterday, but we were talking and it was interesting. So um, it's about the UAW strike in general. It's a Politico story um, headline, why it seems like everyone's going on strike on Biden's watch. Mm -hmm. And it has seemed like that, why there are so many strikes. And it has to do with this idea that Biden has presented himself as the most pro-union president in American history. When we had our person on a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago, months ago, mm-hmm. I don't remember, they were saying Biden's most pro-union president. But in some ways, that's actually putting, backing Biden into a corner when it comes to all of these strikes that have the potential to do real sam- serious damage to the economy uh, just when he needs the economy to be doing great he- heading into his election. Now, obviously, these workers are advocating for things that, you know, they view as very, very important. But if you look at the rail negotiations, uh, which is listed in this article, they sort of go through some of the big fights that have happened on Biden's watch. The rail negotiations where the White House very famously stepped in Mm -hmm. and got, you know, dreamed for it. Basically, um, what I didn't know is that remember how we were talking about the the sick leave and how upset the workers were that the White House stepped in yeah, and a yeah, deal yeah. was made without the sick leave. Apparently, some railroads individually came to agreements with their unions on paid sick leaves in the months following mm. those negotiations. So some of it did actually end up working out. Um, but UPS Teamsters, and remember that's when the head of the mm-hmm. Teamsters was like, "Stay out of it," mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was an open threat. Port negotiations on the West Coast, Hollywood strikes going on. And it it's, you know, Biden has tied himself so closely with the unions. It makes it very difficult for him to not back them in these fights, mm-hmm. even if it means it's going to cause problems for him in an election year, which is um, the price of the game. Totally, totally. I saw some piece today speculating on whether or not Biden was going to go walk the picket lines with the UAW uh, members mm. who were out, which would be huge and I believe unprecedented. But right next to it was an article about how Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, is Biden's best buddy on EVs because she wants to spend billions mm. of dollars on EVs. And Biden, of course, in, yeah. in the IRA and all of that is all about EVs. So it's it's he's in a it's, that's why well, he gets the yeah. big money. Right. And now some of these um you know, companies are saying that if plants shut down, they might not reopen. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Tough times. Tough time. Uh, here's mine. It's a quickie. It's a data point, And it's a it's a sometimes the headline is a little bit misleading. There's a headline in The Wall Street Journal today that says the Fed's next challenge, one hundred dollar oil. The Wall Street Journal is talking about that because Brent crude, which is the international benchmark, is bumping up against $100 barrel. It's about 94 and change right now on its way up. The 12-month high on Brent crude is like $98 a barrel. Um, and, you know, once it crosses 100 bucks, big mental uh, uh, level there, and, and, and it'll be, you know, all over the news. But I would submit it's not really the Fed's next challenge. Sure, it is an inflation issue, and I understand that. But really what it is is a challenge for American consumers – who are going to be spending more out of pocket and thus not being able to spend other things on other things, um, including stuff like, oh, I don't know, student loan payments that are just starting again, but also everything else in this economy that consumers have to keep buying so the economy keeps going. So oil's going up. The Fed is looking at it. Uh, I would think about consumers too. Gas, by the way, at the Shell station next to my house, five ninety nine a gallon this morning. 
Oof. Yeah. Welcome to California. It, this reminds me of that point you made, was it yesterday, about Macy's hiring for the holidays? Oh, I know. Well, well, yes, right? However, comma, there's a piece in Bloomberg Wait, today. for people who didn't, sorry, for go people ahead. Who go didn't ahead. hear yes, it, um, Macy's <laughs> Wait a minute. What do, you, what, do you, what do you mean people who didn't hear it? God. Sorry, just kidding. Just in case. Just in case someone doesn't listen to That's everything right. That's right. that Marketplace That's right. puts out. Um, basically, Macy's is hiring significantly fewer. Well, is it fewer... Fewer, or, yeah. Was it right it, on brand? It, yeah, it's, it's it's within spitting distance, but far fewer than uh, two years ago. Yeah, in terms of seasonal yeah. holiday workers yeah. with the idea that people are likely going to be shopping less, at least right. in stores, this holiday season. I'm, okay, go I'm, ahead. Gl- I'm glad you said at least in stores because there's a piece in Bloomberg this morning saying that Amazon is going to hire 250,000 workers, which is a big jump from last year. So people are not mm. doing brick and mortar. We're all doing online and lots of it. Wow. Yeah. So, but still spending, it right, seems. Right, right, right. <laughs> I don't know if if we take like snapshots of our of our own personal economy. Like over the summer, I was feeling very optimistic, and I ordered this new patio set. Well, it's still summer, but or beginning of the summer, I ordered this new patio set, and then I came back from vacation, and I was like, I spent a lot of money on vacation. I probably oh, don't yeah. really need a new patio set, and so I canceled the order and got a refund because um, oh. it hadn't come yet. And I was just like, how many people are sort of reevaluating? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. this time of year, heading into the winter. You had, you know, your Beyonce, Taylor Swift, vacation, mm-hmm. international travel summer for those who are fortunate enough to be able to do so. And then you're just like, yeah, it's time to pull back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. That is it for the news. Let us move on to the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right. We have spent some time of late, including on the pod today, talking about President Biden and the economy, who gets credit, where credit should be given and how people are feeling about this economy, the vibes. Right. Uh, And we got this. Hi, this is Jenny from Omaha, Nebraska, commenting on Kai's commentary related to President Biden getting credit for the economy. Also in that Census Bureau report, not just the median household income, also the drastic increase in child poverty over the past year. Uh, I think there was some sort of increase about 140%. So families are feeling this really, really deeply. And I think that's important to note, too, as we talk about federal policy and how we can help out people. Totally. Totally. We, we, we should also, though, point out, you know, why that happened. Right. There's a child tax credit that expired. (laughs) Right. And also the expiration of a lot of COVID aid unrelated to the child tax credit. So there's a lot going on. But but absolutely true. Absolutely true that the child poverty in this country is up by an unconscionable amount. Right. Um. One more. Last week, we were talking about Andy Weir and what he learned. He was answering the Make Me Smart question. Um, and he mentioned that he didn't know how to spell the word eyesore, and he spelled it I-C-O-R. And I pointed out that in fantasy writing, there's the word icor a lot that references, that's used to talk about dragon's blood. <laughs> Because I'm that person. Mm. Anyway, a listener called in to tell us more about ICOR. Hi, this is Anna from Jacksonville, Florida. The word is ICOR, spelled I C H O R. And the dictionary says it's the, either the ethereal fluid in the veins of ancient Greek gods 
or a thin, watery, or blood-tinged discharge. So, yes, it definitely shows up in a lot of fantasy writing, but not just about dragons. Oh, 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 my goodness. That's all I, I love say. that other people resonated on that. Ah, <laughs> Warms watery, my blonde, little fantasy. discharge. Yes. Okay. So, anywho, moving on <laughs> quickly as we possibly can. Uh, this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, once again, should you be wanting to answer it, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Hey, this is Maggie from Okeechobee, Florida, and something I thought I knew that I later found out I was wrong about was that cows eat everything in sight. So we bought nine acres about four years ago. We have been turning it little by little into a hobby farm. So, of course, we wanted to put cows on it. We have two cows. They are a little over one years old each and they don't just eat feed and they don't just eat grass they eat palm trees they eat my regular trees they eat my fruit trees pretty much anything in sight that they can eat they will eat so cows eat everything who knew i definitely did not know that i thought it was like grass and 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 you know wheat and feed and stuff clover and stuff Yeah, yeah definitely didn't know that and you must go to the website, so you can see this very cute photo that Maggie sent us of her cow literally munching on a tree. It's Deep And I realize that in all the sort of imagery you see of, like, cows in farm settings, they are not by palm trees. That's true. <laughs> that is true. You know, true. at least in the United States, you know. But. That is true. All right, so hmm. your answer to the Make Me Smart question can come to us uh, one of a couple of ways, 508-UB-SMART or make me smart at marketplace.org. Um, and, um, and that's that. That's where we go. That's what we got. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Drew Jostad with mixing by J.C. Bolt. Our intern is Neela Farshabandi. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. There we go. Do you even read any fantasy at all? No, I'm not a fantasy guy. My my second oldest son is a huge fantasy guy. Not me. Ah. Yeah. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.